It's good to be here. Um, we are excited for spring, right? Amen to that. Spring, spring feels like it's here more and more. Um, this morning, I'd invite you to grab a, a Bible, your own or the one provided in front of you, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, it's page 956. If you're using one of the supplied Bibles, and if you've been here the last uh, two weeks, and now the third week, we've, this has been our scripture reading and the text we've been working through, and hopefully uh, by now as you're reading through it, you're, you're, you're picking up the flow of what Paul has been teaching the church in Corinth and uh, admonishing them, exhorting them, uh, and even at points condemning them in their behavior and their thought process. This morning we're going to look at verses number 7 to 13 and uh, conclude chapter 8 here. Um, and I want, to do, uh, I want to start out by reading again uh, verses 7 to 13 and then we'll work through these verses here this morning. Uh, Paul writes, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no better off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let me open us up in prayer as we come to the scriptures. Lord, uh, that, that last song is the prayer of our hearts, that you would, through your word, show us Christ. Uh, we, we don't gather together this morning to show others our abilities and our skills and our wisdom or our might. Lord, we don't gather uh, to, to, to make much of anything else other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I pray that as we, we look at your word and uh, we, we examine the truths that it has, that we would see your glory on full display in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord, in just a little while, we'll observe visibly and partake physically of the communion table, Lord, which, which sets our minds fully on the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. And we know that the whole of the gospel, although centered in Christ, was the plan of the Father before the foundation of the world, and it's through the Spirit that we can even begin to understand the riches of the gospel that brings salvation to lost sinners. Lord, this morning, there are many different minds in this room, uh, some that f are fully committed to believing 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, some that want nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, but, but, but our desire here this morning is to proclaim this good news until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. And so I pray that, that you would be at work in each and every life, that you would uh, convict, Lord, where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us in these great truths. Help us to be attentive. Help me to be clear. And bless our time now as we, as we look here at 1 Corinthians 8. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the history of the church, there have been many issues that have been deemed, or many things deemed off-limits due to their association with the world. Or we might say, in light of this passage, due to their association with idols. Things like musical instruments. And I'm not just talking about the, the modern-day instruments. Uh, did you know that there was a time within the church that the piano was deemed off-limits? as it was considered a bar room instrument. Things like length of hair, hairstyles, certain articles of clothing, technology, even today. What, we're not, we don't have hymnals? Political issues, things like smoking a cigar or even drinking alcohol. The list could go on and on. And looking at any number of these issues, you could stop and ask and wonder, you know, why is, why is the Christian church so hung up on these secondary issues? I mean, are these things that really have a, an eternal significance, a, a lasting, um, are these lasting matters and issues? We can easily get hung up on these lesser things. And so there is, a, I think, a heart check that we can each do and ask ourselves, whether we spend our time fighting and debating over things that really, really don't matter all that much. We may need to do some growth in our knowledge of the gospel and learn to distinguish between primary and secondary issues. And this really gets to the heart of our theme in 1 Corinthians, which is we must cling to what truly matters. Can we say that together here this morning? We must cling to what truly matters. That's what we need to set our, our focus on, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, because what, what matters is our worship of God and our love for others. We've looked at that the last two weeks. As Christians, we are called to use biblical discernment in our lives when making any decision. At times, the Bible is very clear about the decision that we're supposed to make. And then at other times... We don't have that black and white answer that we like. I, I like the black and white. This or that. Period. There's no, there's no gray area here. But a lot of times we, we don't get that. And the question presented to us in chapter 8, what do we do when these, these gray issues come up? When these issues of conscience come up where, where one Christian has a different opinion than the other because maybe the scriptures don't specifically address whatever that thing is in our culture. And it's in these situations that we rely on biblical principles to guide us by faith. Over the past three weeks, this week included, I've offered to you 
three principles to consider when dealing with issues of conscience. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first one. That is love trumps knowledge from verses 1 to 3. The love you show is more important than the knowledge you have. That's most important, our love for one another. Last week, we looked at the second principle, which was God trumps idols. There is only one true God, and we exist for him. And it's our worship of God that that, that should be at the heart of everything that we do in our lives. Because all of life is worship. And today, principle number three we're going to look at is this. Brother trumps freedom. So in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 7 to 13, Paul focuses in on the issue at hand. He's given some general principles. And now here's where the, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Okay? We need to be, first and foremost, uh, concerned with our worship of God and our love for one another. So now he's bringing this. So in light of that, what do we do with this issue of meat offered to idols? In verse number 7, Paul following this, this knowledge that he says that we, that we should have, that there is only one Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. There is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He says, however, however, not all possess this knowledge. And you can see how Paul's building his argument going all the way back into verse 1 when, when he throws out the statement, we know that all of us possess this knowledge, this, this spiritual enlightenment. And after working through some, some basic theology, Paul then says, hey, not all possess this knowledge. There are some believers who really have a hard time thinking about idols as mere wood uh, uh, and stone, Dead. They have a hard time with that. They, because what does he say? Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. Because they were so much a part of this idolatrous culture in their past, before becoming followers of Jesus Christ, they, it seemed to them that they were really participating in the worship of the idol, participating with the idol even if they would eat the meat that was offered to the idol. They couldn't disconnect that in their mind. Yeah, I I like this verse as I think about it from the standpoint of evangelism. Because what is Paul telling the church here? Hey, there are some who, through former association, if we think about that evangelistically, there should be some within each church who have a former association with, with false teaching. If a healthy church, if a church is healthy, we'll be seeing people come in who have a former association with the lost, with the world. So that's a good thing. But then how do you, how do you work out these issues when there's all these different perspectives and different backgrounds that's what Paul's been working through. 
Because some of these Christians, they were Christians, they just couldn't make, they couldn't disconnect the idea. In 1890, uh, a man by the name of Ivan Pavlov did an experiment. And in that experiment, which you probably know as Pavlov's dog, he would ring a bell for the dog. And every time he rang a bell, he would also provide food to the dog. And as that bell was rung and that food was provided, the dog would salivate. And after a while, he would ring the bell, but he would stop bringing food. And you know what the dog would do? It would still salivate. It, it had a conditioned response that in the dog's mind, it couldn't stop associating the bell from the food. And so even when there was no food, it would still salivate. You have a similar idea here. Their conscience being defiled, that phrase there, is, is, is like the salivating response. They, so long they've been associating this practice with idolatry that they, they, couldn't, they couldn't get that out of their mind. And to them, it was like they were committing idolatry. And so what we have here is a difference in conscience among those within the church. And Paul here says, he says, uh, one is said to have a weak conscience. But, but I do want to be careful here when we think about this term weak. Because I don't think we should jump to the conclusion that they were somehow spiritually inferior. Like they were somehow lesser spiritually I don't think that, that's not what Paul's saying here. Their conscience is weak in this area, but they may be strong in other areas. In fact, I might speculate that to some degree, we all have different backgrounds, and for each of us, there, there are, there's an issue or an area that, that we would be deemed to have a sort of a weak conscience, where others might have freedom to do something, we just can't, can't get there because of past connections. In every relationship, people bring lots of baggage. We understand that in marriage. If you're on the verge of getting married or looking forward to getting married, be warned, there's a lot of baggage that you're going to bring into that relationship and that the other person will bring into that relationship and you're working together to grow with one another. If we think of an example of, of a child who was abused and adopted into a loving family, that child could be reaffirmed in love by those new parents and that new family and told over and over and over again. And they may get to the point where they say, I believe, I believe that you love me. I believe that I am loved. And I think at some level they, that person does believe that, but then what? What could happen? Something triggers something from the past. And all of a sudden, they're struggling again to believe this truth that they are loved. You know, would we, thinking about that, would we get angry with that child? Would we, would we just push them? Hey, you got to just get past this. No, I think, I think we would be gentle with them. I think we'd probably come alongside them and reassure them that they are loved, 
be patiently showing them that their family loves them. And I think this is, this is how we need to treat a brother and sister who has a, maybe a weakened conscience in certain areas. It's not just a matter of plowing things ahead, although we want to see them grow in their, their understanding and in their knowledge. But it's not just, hey, we have to get from point A to point B. It's, no, I want to patiently, lovingly come alongside of you, walking with you and exploring the truths of the gospel, which is exactly what Paul takes them to in verse number eight. Verse number eight is a fun verse, really, in this passage. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now, it's interesting, Paul here changes the word for food. So we've been talking about this food being offered to idols, uh, starting in verse number one. And, and the word there that is used is, the, is specifically used for meat that is offered to an idol. Here in verse number eight, Paul says, Food and he broadens his language. This is not just specifically food offered to an idol, but but now I'm just talking about food in general. And I think he does it for a specific reason. Think about the Old Testament. The Jews had dietary laws. There were some foods that were deemed clean. There were some foods that were deemed unclean. And that and that was a real tension in the early church and even in Paul's own life. You come to Acts chapter 10 and God gives Peter a vision. And if, you, if you're familiar with that passage, God, in that vision that God gives to Peter, he declares that all food is clean. All food is now allowed to be eaten. Why? Because in Christ the law has been fulfilled. And so what Paul is doing in verse number 8, listen, we don't want to go backwards, so to speak, in our thinking. We're not trying to go back under the law as we're thinking through these issues. Food will not commend us to God. It's not in the external keeping of the law that allows us to stand righteous before a holy God. He says something similar in the previous chapter, in chapter 7, verse 19, when he says what? Neither circumcision or uncircumcision will commend you to God. So Paul is issuing a warning here against going backwards in their thinking about, look, if I just adhere to the law, what does he say? You are no worse off. Sorry, I'll get in my place. We we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Yeah, it's interesting. The word for no worse is the same word used in Romans 3.23, false short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what what is Paul saying? You are not going to fall short as a Christian if you do not eat, if you refrain from certain things. But you are no better off. You're not going to put yourself over the top in God's eyes if you do eat. We are only commended to God as we come through, to him through Jesus Christ, which is what we looked at last week in verse number six. Because it's Jesus' work on the cross that is the only way we can be made right with God. And so I, Paul is taking a moment here to warn the church about falling back into legalism. 
that, that you can somehow earn God's favor based on your works or your actions, which we're going to address a little bit further, a little bit more as we get a little bit further into this text. But don't fall back into thinking that the law can commend you to God. It, it cannot. Paul continues in verse number 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So now Paul is contrasting those who have a weak conscience with food, with believers who understand that they have a right to eat this meat, or they have the authority to do this. They have the power to do this, is, is their perspective. We would say it like this, they have Christian liberty. But I want you to notice, about, notice how Paul talks about this, this right, this liberty. He doesn't say, boast in your liberty, but instead he gives us a command and he says, take care. Or be careful. Or see to it that you handle your liberty in a certain way. That this right, this liberty does not somehow, that is by any means, in any way, shape, or form, does not somehow become a stumbling block. Kids, have you ever been doing something, playing or whatever the case might be, and you mistakenly or inadvertently do something that causes harm to your brother or sister? You break their toy, you mess up their thing, or you accidentally hit them. You know how that goes? And you're, ready, you're, you're bracing because now they go and tell or they start yelling and your parents comes into the room, and what's the first thing you say? I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean it. What Paul is saying here, when he says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow, by some means, in some way, become a stumbling block, Paul is saying, I didn't mean it is not an excuse. We can't, we can't just sweep that under and say, I, I didn't mean to do that. Paul says that's not an excuse. Ben Parker, the uncle of Peter Parker, a.k.a., you know who I'm talking about? Spider-Man, okay? There he is. He gave these wise words to his nephew Peter, with great power, comes great responsibility. Man, you guys know that really well, okay? Wise words, but it, didn't, it wasn't original to Peter Parker or Ben Parker. Uh, and very likely, actually, it has its origins in Luke chapter 12 and verse number 48, where the, the greatest hero ever, Jesus, said this, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. When we claim, hey, I have a right to something based on maybe what Scripture does or doesn't say, 
we have a responsibility towards one another. And so back to our warning here in verse number nine, take care of that this right of yours does not cause a stumbling block to those with a weak conscience. The word stumbling block here is this idea, does not cause an occasion to sin. It's not just a struggle here, but, but you're, you're actually wanting to make sure that you are not leading another brother or sister into sin. You are responsible for this. Now, just a quick note, because I, I thought this, and, and so some of you may be asking the same thing as we think about these issues. In thinking about these gray areas of life, these issues that come up, what, what do we do or how do we think through that in relation to, to those who are perhaps more, more legalistic in their thinking, who, who set up these extra biblical standards? Are we, are we supposed to be bound by their conscience? Or are we even supposed to uh, condone their, their extra biblical standards, their legalism? And I would say the answer is no. Because when we look at this phrase and what Paul, I think, is making clear here as we're talking about this issue, he, he's saying the issue at hand in eating this meat is that, and the warning that he's giving, is that it is causing another believer to join in the action. It's not just potentially making them upset or offending them. And, and the key phrase here is they, you are causing an occasion to sin. Because you and I know there are certain Christians who will be offended at any number of issues that could come up. And, and they will sit and they will judge from a distance. But I don't think we're bound to their conscience, nor do I think that, that it's something that we, we need to always simply do uh, that, that might even condone certain of those actions. We, we must be thinking about, is this something that is causing another brother or sister to partake of? to stumble in sin? Is it somehow going to, to, to have this negative, and Paul's going to say, destructive effect in their lives? So we come to verse number 10 here, and Paul gives this practical example. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? I think Paul's using an extreme example here. What, what I mean by that, um, this might have been something that some people were doing. Like they had taken their, their quote-unquote liberty so, so far, and Paul warns against that in the book of Romans. Okay, don't use it as a license to sin. And it appears that some were taking this liberty so far that they were, they were saying, hey, I could even eat in the temple of the idol. Well, in chapter number 10, and we'll get there here at some point over the next five, six weeks, Paul, Paul is going to say, hey, that, that is participation with the idol. That is something that is forbidden. So the difficulty of this whole passage and, and working through it is we have multiple issues related to meat going on here in the church. 
multiple questions being addressed. We have eating of food offered to idols. We have eating food in the temple of an idol. And we also have things like, how do we view these things when unbelievers are involved? And how do we view these things when believers are involved? And so hopefully as we're working through this, some of these things are gonna get sorted out. But here you are, Paul says, the one who has knowledge, You've been enlightened, and you're there reclining in the eating, the dining area in this temple of an idol, saying, hey, I'm just enjoying this nice social meal. No harm done. But, he says, if someone, that's how he, if anyone, sorry, if anyone sees you. In other words, this is something that, that, that they're doing in a very public way. They're doing, it's not, it's not something they're doing behind closed doors, something that they say, hey, I have this, I have this right, I believe, but, I, but I'm, I'm going to be sensitive here. If anyone sees you, you have created an opportunity for your brother or sister to stumble. So in this example, the logical conclusion is if this weak, this, this person of weak conscience sees you, that it's going to encourage them. It's actually the same word in verse number one, build them up. It's going to build them up to eat meat offered to an idol, going against the very conscience that they have related to these things. It may not get them in the door of the idol's temple, but it's going to cause them to eat the meat that, that they still can't, they can't quite separate it in their mind. And so Paul's instruction is clear. We are to build one another up in holy living and be careful not to build one another up to commit sin. And on certain matters not clearly addressed in Scripture, something can be sin for one person and not for another. I want us to turn, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, but turn with me to to Romans chapter 14. There's enough to cover in 1 Corinthians 8 that, that I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but it, it's worthwhile to read through this passage yourself uh, because it, it really has a lot of overlap in thinking through some of these issues and pa- how we pass judgment on one another. We're not to do that, how we cause one another to stumble. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verses Verse, let me read verses 2 through 6, and then I'll read. I'm going to skip way down to the end. But verse number 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats, let, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he, will, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person, here's another issue that there is coming up, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Jump all the way down to verse number 23 
right at, at really at the, the end of it, for whatever does not proceed or come from faith is sin. And so it's very possible that two Christians have two different perspectives on certain issues. And Paul says, be careful about how you judge one another. And if you're doing it in honor to the Lord, that, that, should, that, should, that should say that, that should be the way that we are doing that. We are living that out. So in, the, in these verses here, though, we, and I want to remind us, participating in actions that, that Scripture doesn't speak directly to, but your conscience might say no or don't, to participate that, going against your conscience, regardless of what anyone else is doing, Paul says, hey, hey, that's sin. You need to, to listen to your conscience in these areas. Maybe it's something you need to study out further. Maybe it's something you need to search a little bit more and ask some, some advice from other mature believers. But be careful about going against your own conscience. Christians have certain liberty, though, given to us by Christ. And this liberty is bound by a worship of God and a love for others. When, when our liberty moves outside of these parameters, it becomes both a source of sin for ourselves and for our fellow believers. Notice in, uh, going back to 1 Corinthians 8, let's flip back there. In verse number 11, flippant use of our liberty can have devastating results. Well, what does Paul say here? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Your sister or brother in Christ, Paul says, is destroyed. This is very strong language. In fact, the word literally means to kill, to kill violently, to utterly destroy and who is this person, this weak person? Paul says, he is your brother. Four times in these last three verses, Paul uses the term brother. And the term simply means, this is a person that comes from the same father, the same mother. In spiritual terms, God is the father of all believers. That's what he's described as in verse number six. And he brings all believers into a relationship with, uh, with each other. And so what is, all believers are then what? Siblings with one another. He makes us brothers and sisters through Jesus Christ. So it's not just this nameless person that you're causing to sin. It's not just this faceless person that you're causing to stumble. It is your brother and sister it is, he will continue, if that's not enough, for whom Christ died. Jesus Christ, our Lord, died for that person. Gave his life. His hands, his feet were pierced on a cross. His, a crown of thorns was placed on his head in order to set this person free from sin. And you are now working to kill them, to cause them to sin. And the unasked question in this verse is really, should you rather not die for your brother? 
Should you rather not give up your liberty for your brother? And the seriousness of the matter only escalates. In verse number 12, all the knowledge of your liberty comes crashing down. Thus, sinning against your brother, wounding their conscience. We got that. But Paul says, when you do this, you sin against Christ. So not only do you cause your brother to sin, but you are now committing sin. Whether you thought it was right to eat the meat or not, that doesn't matter. The way you are flaunting your liberty is sinful. The one who has thought they were spiritually superior is found to be sinning against his brothers and sisters. And what does Paul say? Even sinning against Jesus Christ himself. You you feel the, the weight of what's going on here? You can't help but think if Paul is remembering even the words that Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and verse number 5. I think we have that up here, maybe. Here we go. And, he, and Paul said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What was Paul doing? He was traveling around persecuting the church. Jesus was not even on earth anymore in bodily form. And yet, Paul was persecuting Christ himself. It's very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 25. And and I'm not going to read through that, but if you remember that passage 35 to to 46 or so, um, Lord, when when have we uh, not given to those who are in need of clothing or a drink or those things. And Jesus says, if you've, if you've not done it to the least of these, you've not done it to me. Or if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. You see, our sin is never against, never just against another person. It is foundationally against God himself. David in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. God is the one we sin against and it's from him we need need forgiveness. And the irony in all of this, as they, they were really just a divided church, kind of pointing fingers at each other and not on the same page, but the irony is that each of these groups, the, the weak or the strong, wherever they were at on this issue or in any other issues, was they had the same need for Christ to die for them. This is what they should have been looking to. This is what they should have been living in light of. Instead, life within the church was self-focused, and rather than working on building each other up in the gospel, they were sinning against the very Christ they claimed to be worshiping. You don't have to jump back there, but in chapter 6 and verse number 15 of 1 Corinthians, it tells us that as believers, we are part of the body of Christ. And so to sin against one member is to sin against the whole body, including the head, Jesus. Which is why Paul can say what he says in verse 
Number 12, you're not just sinning against your brother, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, we made it to verse 13. Therefore, here's Paul's conclusion on the whole matter. If food makes my brother stumble, causes them to fall into sin, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul once again uses this broader word for food. Like whatever the food is, if it has the potential to cause or to entice someone to sin, I will never eat meat. In, in the original Greek, there's a double negative here. Which, which gives a stronger ev- emphasis on what is being conveyed. It literally reads something like this, I will never, no, never. Or we would say, I will never, ever. The King James translated, translates it like this, as long as the world stands, I will never, ever eat meat. Paul will intentionally limit his freedoms so that he will not cause another brother or sister to fall into sin. Staying with this picture of the church as a body, let me just use a simple illustration about how we can think about this and how we even do that regarding our own bodies. Right? If you have an allergy to some kind of food, dairy allergy, gluten allergy, I'd that's a, that's a, those are hard things. And our daughter has gone through those things. But, but you refrain from certain foods. Why? Because you know that it's going to have a negative impact on the rest of your body. Look, I, I have the freedom to eat that. I can do it. But I know it's, it's going to cause pain over here. I know it's going to be upsetting over here to this other part of my body. And as a church... We're all members of one body. And what we do over here, if it's going to cause pain over here, we need to not do it. The choices you make in the life of the church body impact the rest of the body. And now some Christians and some people even here today, you might say, well, this is why I don't get close to the church. This is why I just kind of slip in I slip out, I do my, I do my worship thing, and then I, I move on. But I don't really get, I keep my distance. And this kind of sounds good, because who wants the responsibility of making decisions in light of you know, what potentially could happen to someone else? I don't want that. So it sounds like maybe a good perspective to have until you get to verse number 12, and well, then God says, hey, I've gifted you each in different ways to be a blessing to the whole body and you're responsible to use that gift in a way that ministers to the whole body. So we can't be non-committal. We must bind ourselves to one another in love. We can't keep each other at a distance, but instead we're called to stir each other to greater spiritual knowledge through mutual love. Life in community isn't always easy. And it gets more and more complicated with some of these issues that we're, we're presented with in our culture. And really, as we deal with issues of conscience, our, 
our view of freedom can, can oftentimes get tunnel vision. And what I mean by that is we start to focus on all the things that we can't have. What do you mean I, I can't do that? What, what do you mean I'm limited in what I can participate in here? Just for that other person, but I, I want to be involved. And we start to get tunnel vision and think about the things that we can't have instead of thinking about the many blessings that we have in Christ the freedom that we do have to, to partake of his glory. And when we think about it like that, we're not all that different from our first parents, Adam and Eve. They had the freedom to eat of the tree. And all they started to focus on was that one tree. And God says, look, I, I've provided all of this to eat for you, to enjoy, to partake of, to be in, in, in fellowship with me. Instead, they ate of the tree and their quote-unquote freedom because they weren't free to eat of that in the sense of being a moral issue. But they brought destructive effects on each other, which is why our freedom in Christ needs to be made with these three key principles in mind. Spiritual knowledge must be coupled with love. These are just the three, the three main points we've been looking at the last three weeks. Life must be lived out in worship to God, and my brother in Christ is more important than me. If you want one word, characterizations of these three things, simply put, our lives should be lived with these three words in mind. Love, Worship and sacrifice. And what's amazing about our Lord is he, he gives us a visible reminder of those three things. Jesus went to the cross out of love. Love for his people. Love for the Father. He, he went to the cross in worship. Not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross and sacrificed, not for what he did wrong, but for what you and I did wrong. The bread and the juice in the communion meal remind us of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ for all who believe. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, as we move into our time of communion, this ordinance is not an individual ordinance. It's a corporate ordinance. That's why Paul says, when you gather, you're eating in fellowship with one another. It's, the, it's in the united community of a local church that these elements find their full meaning. Yes, it's true, Christ died for you and we reflect on the salvation he has provided us, but you, but Christ died for us, for the whole body of his church. And so through his sacrifice, he cleanses your sin. He brings you into a relationship with himself. He brings you into a relationship with one another. And now we are responsible to live in light of that relationship with one another. And so this morning, by partaking of this communion meal, 
you are confessing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior by faith in him alone. And you are confessing that you desire to live in love toward him and in love towards one another. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says we need to examine ourselves. Is there something between me and another brother and sister in Christ? Am I living in a way that would cause another brother or sister to sin? Maybe we get good at hiding certain things. Nobody will ever know about these things, but we we know their sin and potentially can cause harm to another brother. So by taking, partaking of this, you are a believer. This is what you are confessing. This is what you are professing, not only before God, but before those that are sitting around you. If you can't say this, that can't, can't say that you are trusting in Christ, I just encourage you, don't partake in this time. Instead, take to yourself Jesus Christ. Uh, search your heart and examine yourself to see what might need to be confessed, what things you're holding on to. There is no shame in not partaking. In fact, the greatest shame is coming to the end and finding out what God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 3, that God does not know you. You've just been going through the motions. So as we sing, there will be people down here uh, in the front to pray with you if you you have a need for prayer, if you want to talk more about what it means to, to know Jesus Christ as your Savior.